0: Welcome along, Twilight Football once again here on a Tuesday afternoon. Hopefully one of the last shows we'll be doing remotely, but uh, we'll keep you posted with potential return to the studio. It's uh, looking a little bit more positive here in Melbourne with everything starting to open up, a taste of freedom, the sun is shining. Nick Dubano, how are you?
1: Uh, Good. had my week off last week, unfortunately it was a late withdrawal. Bit of illness, but now we're back. We've, uh, we've passed the fitness test and we're in today. So, unfortunately for Pakua Frimpong, she's back in the twos for this week. But she hopefully back in the one soon enough.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, Nick, uh, we had a glorious return uh, for the Matildas over the weekend. Uh, their first game in Australia, what was it, 500, 600 days? It was a ridiculous uh, break mm. between home fixtures and it ended in a win a 3-1 victory over the old rivals brazil who aside from the olympics game that we don't talk about are absolutely australia's bunnies and uh, i don't know i was feeling it i was really enjoying that matilda's performance the most i've enjoyed seeing them play in quite some time
1: yeah well i mean i didn't really get much of a chance to watch it live i was sort of enjoying the lockdown freedoms uh on saturday night and i caught up on it on sunday uh, sort of had the game on the background Saturday night, and you could sort of feel when you're watching the game that sense of excitement. Um, you know, I saw the goals, and sort of you see the reaction from the fans uh, at, at that point. Also, the reaction on social media as the goals were happening was pretty was pretty massive. But then, re- when really rewatching the game, there were a lot of things to, I guess, be excited about. A lot of um, subtle improvements. I guess the number one thing that I took away from it, Josh, was not just the excitement of having the Matildas back and them winning. But how good is it when you actually play players in the right positions, in their comfortable position, and how well they play? I'm pretty sure it was one of your tweets during the game about that. But when you actually see Ali Carpenter at right back, Steph Catley at left back, Emily Van Egmond not playing as a six, and it worked, who would have thought?
0: Who would have thunk it indeed? I mean, I think it was a little bit of validation for all of us who've been tweeting the same things about the Matildas under three (laughs) successive managers. And maybe... Uh, Tony Gustafsson, who we know he he takes notes, we know he has his whiteboard, and he's, uh, you know, hopefully very attentive to those piping up with their their hand up at the back of the class. Hopefully he's been uh, looking at some of the takes flying around about uh, Matilda's managers putting square pegs in round holes, and finally we've got a coach who might be embracing uh, Emily van Egmond as an attacking midfielder, embracing the fact that we have two of the best fullbacks in world football. But we'll get into that with Marissa Lordanik at quarter past five in about uh, five or ten minutes. Uh, Nick, also uh, breaking news this afternoon, uh, the Matildas' former boss, Alan Stajic, has been appointed coach of the Philippines women's national team in time for the 2022 Asian Cup in India, uh, they will be seeking to qualify for the Women's World Cup for the first time. What's your reaction to that news?
1: I'm a bit surprised, Josh. I'm not going to lie. I thought that just in terms of I thought his next job, wherever it might be, would be domestic. Like as in it would stay. He'd stay in the realms of Australia. I thought he'd be the probably the number one sort of the number one free agent coach available if any A League team pulled the pin um relatively early in the season or whatever else on their boss I thought he's he's a shoo-in like he's going to be easily picked up but the theme go number one overseas but also to the Philippines I find that no disrespect to the Philippines but it is a little bit of a downgrade Mm. I think that's fair to say um but the the overwhelming storyline here is that there is a chance that I believe that they may Australians, the Philippines may meet at the Asian Cup. I don't think the groups have been drawn yet, nor is qualification finished. But there's every chance there's going to be that storyline to it too. Um, But yeah, very shocked. Shocked that that's the move entirely, Josh.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sort of already uh, exhausted in anticipation of the hot takes. Should the Philippines do well or should the Philippines play against the Matildas? But I agree. It seems... A little modest an appointment for a coach of his caliber and standing in the game, especially after he uh, was sort of vindicated by his spell at the Mariners last season. And, you know, left very much because the club didn't try hard enough to keep him, Uh, not because he was sacked, obviously. Like, you know, he did miracles with the Mariners. You know, he's obviously uh, had a very successful spell in charge in the Matildas with... A very complicated and acrimonious end that we do not need to recap here. Uh, but I, I, I'm a little bit underwhelmed. I thought uh, one of, maybe not the powerhouse teams, but the mid-ranking uh, women's national teams would have been keen to take him on or maybe uh, a club job in the WSL or or the NWSL over in America. I thought he kind of had his pick um, of plum positions. So this one is a real surprise to me. I can't claim to have ever seen the Philippines national women's team play. Don't know what standard they're at. Uh, Generally speaking, women's football in Asia is lagging behind a little bit with certain countries as notable exceptions, such as Japan. Um, But yeah, I'm keen to see what he can do. And it does add a curious little side plot to the upcoming uh, uh, Women's Asian Cup in 2022.
1: Say, hey, well, it's a good appointment for the Philippines, Josh. Like, it's I think a that's one thing we to do them. Ma- it's a fantastic pickup. They're the, I'm just having a look. They're the third third lowest ranked team that's currently qualified for the Asian Cup. Getting someone in like Alan Stage is a brilliant appointment. Um, I just think that he could have gone maybe an empire. higher. I think that's one thing we can agree on. Yeah. Uh,
0: it, it seems, yeah, slightly surprising. And, you know, I, I was also wondering whether he would hang around for. Uh, you know, a potential A League gig that would open up. Yeah. Um, I think he was in the running for certain positions, like Western United, which was eventually filled by John Aloisi. Uh, you know, Carl Robinson's been under all sort of sorts of pressure at Western Sydney to get results. You could see, you know, that if that goes awry early in the season, that might be an available gig that would be gettable for Stages. So, again, a little bit surprising, but um, you know, moving back into the women's game for him is a, is an interesting move. Uh, We'll talk more about the Matildas and the upcoming game tonight against Brazil, the rematch of the two-game series uh, with Marisa Lordanic on the other side of the next break. Uh, But Nick, getting into some other news, uh, MacArthur, the bells are ringing for the new goalkeeper. All of a sudden, a captain retires thanks to injury in Adam Federici, and in comes Philip Curto, who was outstanding in his first campaign in the A-League, but uh, suffered some pretty brutal head knocks. Uh, in a subsequent one, and uh, he gets a lifeline back into the professional game here in Australia. The the Polish goalkeeper.
1: Yeah, it's one of those um, high risk, high reward kind of pickups. Um, I mean, we don't know. I think when he copped his last concussion in Ballarat, he didn't play a single minute after that for the rest of the season. He lost his spot to Ryan Scott, not just on form, but I think that there might have been some concerns about sort of his own personal welfare. Um, But I mean, if MacArthur are taking a pun on him, I mean, he must, it must be that they believe that he's good to go. He would have had to have undergone all sorts of tests, medicals and everything to make sure that he's all good and ready to go. And we know that the the nature of how we deal with concussions now in professional sports is a lot different to say how we dealt with it five years ago. Um, For me, though, if this move pays off and he gets, has any form similar to what he did when he first came onto the scene at Wellington and even... His first season at Western United, this is a brilliant picker. Um, It's a shame that that they've lost Adam Federici and the league's lost Adam Federici so soon. Um, It would have been great to see him go again. But I'll tell you what, if this move pays off, it's a good one. And MacArthur's lost their first two preseason games. They've conceded eight goals. Um, And out of all the goalkeepers available with the window shut, I think that Philip Curto probably is the best one if he can stay fit. That's the big if. So, um, yeah, high risk, high reward.
0: It's a bit of a schmozzle over at MacArthur at the moment. Mark Milligan apparently stepping away from his assistant coaching role Mm. uh, over concerns about the direction of the club. And perhaps there's a potential conflict of interest there with his uh, new gig over at Channel 10 uh, covering the Ag League as well. Uh, So, you know, that's a big loss on the eve of the season, losing your captain, all of these losses in pre-season games by pretty hefty score lines, especially that 5-0 defeat uh, to Sydney that got so much publicity. Where do you expect MacArthur will finish this season based on this? I mean, do do we read anything into pre-season form? Is it way too early to say?
1: Um, There's a lot of different factors, Josh. We can probably go in. Probably best not to touch on them all, but I mean the yeah. the main the main thing here is that their results aren't promising. Five uh, 0 loss against Sydney FC and a three one loss against the Mariners, who I've tipped to a, a very little sample size to be one of the sides to potentially regret. We don't know what they're going to be like under Big Montgomery, but for a team that have been quite active in the off season and have gone and spent big on Devere and Urich and Craig Noon and really look to try bring in some some quality players to build on a semi-final finish last year deserved or undeserved um last season i have a lot of concerns i feel like a lot of teams below them have, it have looked like they're going to improve this season and i have a feeling that if they don't get the ship sort of they don't get their off-field affairs in order mm-hmm. and they can translate into their on-field affairs i feel like they might get lost in the mix and this could be a really tough season for macarthur
0: I mean, they've raised a lot of eyebrows with their spending and their attempts to lure star players from other clubs, Uh, particularly Ulysses Davila is a huge pickup, Craig Noon from Melbourne City. I wonder whether the star names and this sort of (laughs) Galacticos-style recruitment policy is actually going to come together for them. Um, But, you know, it's early, early days yet. Season hasn't even started. Still got another month to go. Uh, So you could could see them pulling it together in time with a lot of new faces there. Uh, Nick, we'll take a short break. On the other side, uh, we've got Marissa Lordanek of the Far Post podcast. She writes for the Roar as well. Excellent piece after the Matildas 3-1 win over Brazil over the weekend. Uh, We're going to chat to her about the glorious homecoming, the big win, and the rematch tonight against Brazil. So stick around here on Twilight Football. We're back here on Twilight Football on a Tuesday afternoon. Nick DiBarno here with me and Marissa Lordanic joins us now to talk Matildas after a pretty glorious homecoming. It was a feel-good 3-1 win over Brazil. Personally, I felt it was the most uh, encouraging, I suppose, performance that the Matildas have put together in quite a while. Uh, Marissa, welcome back to FNR and uh, how are you feeling about the state of our women's national team?
2: Thanks for having me, guys. I feel, I feel really good. I, I agree with you completely. It was such a an enjoyable game to watch, and it just felt uh, it was a real big relief. I think that's the the big word that's kind of come out of it. It was a relief to get the win, to have the team back on home soil for Tony to get the win in his first trip uh, down under and stuff. There was just a lot to like about the performance and there was just a lot of really good things that came out of it so overall it's a it's a very positive kind of vibe that's come out of this one game and there's the hope that it gets replicated later tonight
1: what were some of those good things you like marissa um josh and i spoke about a few of them but we're curious to hear what, what you think
2: yeah there was so many players really shone i think we all kind of bang on about mary fowler but she just continues to show us what she can do and kind of the the gap between her being kind of teenage prodigy into just full-blown superstar is kind of getting smaller and smaller and she's really kind of entering that territory and we saw that uh on saturday night i thought kyra cooney cross was amazing as well in the six it's not something we typically see her in in uh a-League women level, I had to stop myself saying W-League there, but it's not something we're used to seeing her in, but I think she made a great account of herself. I thought she was really good and I think she was necessary in that position to then allow other players to do their thing, which is something we've all been kind of talking about for years as Matilda's fans. I thought Emily van Egmond's half was absolutely excellent. It was so nice to see her kind of be given free reign as an attacking player because... We know she's good at it and she has been one of the Matildas best. I think in the Olympic qualifiers at the start of 2020, she was our top scorer and our top assister. And then we basically lost her for the first half of 2021 because she had to be shuffled back in the midfield. So to, you know, see her return to the position where we know she does good things was just an absolute kind of joy to see. Even Kerr didn't get on the score sheet, but did all those little things that maybe people don't, pick up on or, you know, they don't rate as highly as goals because of the position she plays in. But she did all those things that still contribute to the team and still, you know, end up getting us a win. So everyone was just really good. I can't really fault many of the players. I think there was just a lot of things to like and a lot of things that were a lot of players that just did what they had to do and they did it well. So it was just exciting to kind of see that.
0: Watching the Matildas at the Olympics and seeing how the team was continually looking for Kerr as an aerial threat, uh, continually playing quite ambitious, long diagonal balls to see if she could win something in the air or forcing crosses, it kind of reminded me just a little bit of what we're seeing at Manchester United with Cristiano Ronaldo at the moment. You're like, you know this uh, superstar striker is so good in the air and so good when the ball is in the box that you kind of try and force the issue too much, mm. whereas... In this Brazil game, I just think we saw more of a team-first approach and more joined up thinking that I think will benefit Kerr in the long term anyway.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we still definitely utilised the wide spaces. There was still a lot of crossing. There was still a lot of wide play. The thing was that there was other people in the central uh, the central spaces to capitalise on that, so it wasn't always the long ball, long ball to Kerr thing, which mm. I think we all know has... You know produces results it gets goals there's a lot of validity to that as a a play and a route to kind of scoring goals but i think this game we really did see that there are other ways for the matildas to score and that was so important because there is a fear and i think it's just an australian football fear that there's an over reliance on your one striker and everything's done to that end and if it's not working then it's panic stations it's you know very soccer tim k kind of yeah areas. But I think this was really reassuring in the sense that we got to see that there are other players and there are other ways that Tildes can score. But then we've also always got that to fall back on the Kerr aerial route. So it was really reassuring in that sense that we can now rely on Mary Fowler to pull something out of her trick bag. Tamika Yollop was allowed to make forward runs and we know that she can score. We know that she's actually a really immense attacking threat and she does that week in, week out at club level again, Van Egmont, I can't, you know, rave about it enough. It's so good that she can now be that attacking threat as well. So we got to see lots of other ways the Matildas can score. And that was actually probably one of the most exciting things.
1: I thing that I really like Marissa was defensively. Like they weren't leaking as many goals. They were a lot more compact. I think the sort of the areas in between defensive field, uh, Tony spoke a lot about that they really want to work on defending better. Um, was that something that caught your eye as well?
2: Yeah, I think everyone kind of noted the shift back to a, a flat back four rather than the kind of fluid backline we saw during the Olympics. And I think it it definitely worked. I don't know if there was almost an element also of just this is familiar, so I like it. Like I know what I'm going to get here, so I'm a big fan of it. But to their immense credit, they all did really well. I heard you guys talking about it earlier, having and Carpenter down the wings, being able to do their thing defensively, but also in an attacking kind of way was... So good. And we know that Polks and Kennedy have a really good partnership and barring a kind of, you know, really unfortunate sort of back pass and error and the rain and all the kind of little bits and pieces that contributed to that one goal that we conceded, they did really well. So I think, yeah, the the flat back four, it's something we know works. Mm. And honestly, I would like to see it, but I don't think we should bin the the fluid black line either. I still think there's a lot of value that we can get out of that, uh, you know, having that in our back pockets and utilizing that. But it was nice to see that I suppose we have the range that, you know, we are able to kind of have two different formations that work in different ways, both in a defensive sense and an attacking one.
0: Having said that though, it was it wasn't perfect. We saw a number of instances on the counterattack where Perhaps Solana Kennedy was out of position or Claire Polkinghorn couldn't keep up with a pacey attacker. Do you think this central defensive combination is a sustainable one going forward, given that, you know, Polks, as much as we adore her, is not getting any younger? And, you know, Kennedy doesn't necessarily have the greatest recovery pace do you think that's something that maybe can be exploited uh at uh the world cup in 2023 you're looking long longer term is there is there a new defensive partner that we potentially have to mint there
2: yeah i think we absolutely do i think it's and again this is kind of one of those things that's uh, been a long-term kind of question mark mm-hmm. over the matildas where before it was brock and Polkinghorn were kind of the well they're not getting any younger so who's coming to the fore in that sense I think you know polks obviously still has a really big role to play as that veteran as that experienced kind of leader i think ross and carly ross Barkin is the question in this regard we haven't seen her for a while because the poor bug has been absolutely just rife with injuries but has made her return uh to her club in norway so he's on managed minutes as she returns from injury but i do think that she is that answer to that question in terms of being the right age of being quick of being a good defender and can really create a partnership with Alana Kennedy that you know lasts hopefully five, ten years, depending obviously on uh how Kennedy goes about mm-hmm. things. But I think yeah, the the Polkinghorn Kennedy one is good, but you're right in the sense that it's not a super long-term kind of solution to the problem. So in that regard, I think Ross Buckens an answer, but then we've got a few other players that could potentially be answers that are again in that right kind of age bracket and stuff, the likes of Emma Checker who's in this squad as well. So mm-hmm. I would be keen to kind of see them uh, played around with almost in this game because now that we've got the win, there is almost a little less um, expectation on getting a win, so there's that chance to kind of utilise the players and have a little tinker around and see who else can kind of uh, show show their goods and see if it's something that we can utilise going forward.
1: Mm. And you did mention, obviously, tonight is a big game in terms of just seeing what we do have. Is that something that you sort of want to see tonight, not really the result being as important? We already got the win, tonight being another chance to sort of have a look at what else we've got in our reserves?
2: I think, it's, and this is basically been the whole, the the big question of Tony's tenure of how do we balance preparing for something really big that's coming up versus you know, the fact that this is a results-based industry and you need wins, that's what keeps you in a job and that's what keeps everyone happy. So I think another win would quite help, to be honest, because there just haven't been that many, unfortunately, under Tony at the moment. But I do think that he will be able to kind of play around with the lineup a little bit more. I'm hoping that he'll be able to kind of blood some more players, hopefully give, you know, the likes of Jamila Rankin a debut, mm-hmm. get those other players who are kind of 10 caps and under into the into the mix, get them in front of a home crowd, get them, you know, experience this, you know, this is what it's going to be like times 10 in 2023. If you enjoyed this, then keep working and you're going to get to experience that in 2023. So, again, I think it's about that need to balance the two kind of, not opposing forces, but those two things that have equal weight um, and kind of get them to both be in a good position. So I think there will be experimentation, but a win is still kind of vitally important just because of how things have gone down this in this last year.
0: I want to return to the Kyla, Kyra Cooney Cross uh, chat because I don't think we quite sold that hard enough uh, how uh, – I thought it was revelatory, her performance in that number six role, given that she's played as a winger and a number 10 uh, at Melbourne Victory predominantly and just slotted straight into the national team. Only a couple of games in the Olympics playing in that sort of role, um, you know, largely off the bench. And then playing as in, in a completely different position, but with her skill set where she can mm-hmm. receive the ball kind of on the half turn, always moving, always presenting for it. And she's just so, uh, I guess, in the modern parlance, press resistant. She can almost mm. dribble past anybody. And we had that with Fowler in that midfield combination as well. You know, she's just so uh, evasive and elusive when she gets the ball. It just gives this team a whole different dynamic to how they keep possession and, you know, the way that they can actually build up and play out from the back. And then there's the flow-on effect, we, you know, not having that kind of Uh, Elise Kellen Knight, replacement in that role, has meant so many players, usually uh, one notable one uh, in Emily van Egmond, having to sacrifice and play in a position that doesn't suit them. Uh, But I thought it was really telling that uh, Tony Gustafsson did name check Kyra in the post-match press conference because coaches don't usually like to mention individuals uh, unprompted
2: yeah i i do agree that we need to hype her up and we kind of talked about this on the far post pod i've Mm. got to get my obligatory plug in for the pod (laughs) um we had a chat about it and i think sam said it the cairo is almost being reverse engineered into a six where she's already got the attacking she's already got the passing ability and all of that stuff she just kind of needs to learn the defensive things and we've seen her accumulate that stuff in the time that she has spent in the Matildas. And, you know, we're starting to see her put in the tackles, do the tracking back, do all of that good number six stuff that we want, that, you know, we wish KK was still doing. Hopefully she sorts herself out and can be healthy soon because it would be just nice for her as a as a person to not be waddling around on crutches and stuff. But I think what Kyra can potentially do is so exciting because, as we said, we know that she's got so many good elements to the to her game. And if we can just kind of drill that more defensive stuff into her, which she's only young, she's absolutely a sponge and can kind of soak all of that information up, I think she can be so important. And I think you're right that Tony was right to name-check her because it is one of those things, you know, Defensive players don't really get the credit and they love to mention that they don't get the credit. So for her to kind of do all that dirty grunt work in the Mm -hmm. midfield that often goes unnoticed and unchecked, but is so vital to the whole team as the team as a whole running, I think it was important to kind of mention that and validate that and just, you know, you're doing the right thing you're on the right track and it's working well as well I think that's the the main thing it's not kind of like other experiments where we've used players in other positions where it's like we kind of keep flogging that horse this one there's actually there's something there and it seems to be showing so I'm I'm really keen to kind of see how she progresses in the Matilda setup, but then also what kind of ramifications that has for her A-League women's season and how Victory and Jeff Hopkins use it. Like, is it going to be a thing where she's just playing two different positions depending on what shirt she's wearing? Or it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how that progresses as this year kind of moves on.
0: I think one of the, yeah. uh, the cringier efforts from the Fox Sports era of the A-League was uh, Hesky Cam when you press the red button to watch Emil Heskey. But I think we need to resurrect that for Kyra Cooney-Cross because I want Kyra Cam. I want I want the red button option because at points during that uh, Matilda's uh, Brazil game, I was just completely ignoring the ball and just watching the way she was moving into position to receive it or dragging opponent out of the way so that the centre-back could advance with the ball. She just has this intuitive understanding tactically that I think is almost impossible to expect anyone of that age to have having barely ever played that position before it just blew my mind but uh i should probably stop uh you know fanboying over kyra at some point nick you got any more questions
1: (laughs) i was just gonna ask uh one more marissa before we go um a league women's obviously starting in a month and a bit um what what, what's exciting you at the moment obviously i saw your tweet today it's coming around the corner it's almost just flew out of nowhere just Seeing the photos now and everything. Um, what, what's something that you're really looking forward to in the next month to see, and obviously once the season starts?
2: Oh, I'm I'm so excited for the season. I think it's again another one of those Australian football things. The off season is far too long. Oh, I just, I'm, desert, I'm, <laughs> I'm so bored. I want something to watch, something that I can go to. You know what I mean? But. There's so many exciting things coming up. I'm so keen to see the Knicks and what they do and what kind of young Kiwi talent is out there, but also what Australian players they're going to have to use because that's part of the whole uh, bit of them coming into it. They need to have these Australian players. I also have noticed there's a lot of young players. Like if we thought last season there was a move towards younger players after the Matilda's exodus, I feel like it's just kind of doubled down. So there's so many players that have either been train-ons or only gotten maybe like ten minutes in an in an A-League women's season previously, who are now probably, you know, they've got to step up. They're they're it. So I'm really excited to see all these young players, heaps of, you know, Victorian talent kind of spread across the competition. So with my Victorian Nuffy hat on, I'm really excited to see all of those girls. But it's gonna be such a great season I'm really really looking forward to it and just seeing you know can Perth improve on you know the kind of bad hand yeah. they were dealt last season can victory back it up because they've kept so many of their good players and added little bits and pieces really interested to see how Sydney progressed because it was almost by rights they should have they should have won last season they were so fantastic so there's so many little kind of storylines everywhere that I'm really looking forward to and I'm yeah just counting down the days till December 3rd
0: out of those players that you're excited about for this coming W League season, who do you think with a few good performances could force themselves into Tony G's plans? Because it's a question without notice, but as Briley Henry's shown, it only takes six starts and you could be in the mix, you know, you just need six good games and you could be wearing a Matilda's jersey, which I think, I mean, she was a bit of a surprise selection and a bolter. And I'm sure, you know, players like Molina Ayres are wondering what they need to do to, to get a gig. But, it's also a massive incentive for players who even have, haven't even made their uh, W League or A-League women's debut yet.
2: Yeah, absolutely. it's funny you mentioned Melina because when I saw the Briley Henry news, my brain immediately went to Melina Reyes <laughs> and how well she had played last season and I was like, God, she must be absolutely mm. like kicking herself. You know, she was great for South Melbourne as well. So I would love to kind of see her take that next step. I feel like similar to Remy Simpson as well, has kind of had always a decent a-league women's season and then kind of has finally gotten that next step. So I hope that that comes for Molina Reyes. I don't know if they may be necessarily ready to go senior Matildas, but a lot of the young Matildas that have now signed contracts. So you likes of Alana Janczewski, your yeah. Sofia Sakalas, I'm really excited to see what they do and if they can kind of show themselves and show that they're ready to, do the the senior matilda thing after obviously impressing at the the junior level so there's there's heaps of players and of course i can't think of any of them now because <laughs> i'm on air and my brain's gone into panic mode but there's heaps of players that will emerge and i reckon there's even some that will come out of left field and will all be like holy hell where have you been all along straight into the straight into the setup so it's going to be really awesome
0: very last surprise left field question to throw at you, Marissa, because uh, I, I always love to do that to our guests. It's very nice of me. Uh, this gap at centre-back that we've talked about, the need for long-term replacement, the need for potentially, if we could muster one up, a super-athletic, super-fast kind of terminator of a defender to play next to someone like Alana Kennedy to cover for her you know, lack of pace on the turn. Could we put in a, a call to the Home Affairs Department and see if we can't sort out a passport for a certain American centre half at Melbourne Victory?
2: I have previously joked that you know I think naturalisation surely that that process is you know. I mean, everybody on its else way. does it, don't they? You know? Surely we can we can do that because I reckon she. <laughs> She's such a good player. I
0: Kayla can't... Morrison for the uninitiated. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> We're just like
2: alluding to yeah. it. the gonna... I could rave about Kayla Morrison for days. I think she's just an absolutely outstanding player and I would love to see her if she so chooses to become an Australian and maybe work her her way in. She's kind of similar in age to Alana Kennedy and I just think she's such a calming presence and I would love to see if she you know brings that to a, a senior national side it, obviously with the big asterisk of the fact that she's not actually australian but if that so happens i would love it i i'm fully on board it as an idea and i think she's absolutely fantastic
0: all right kayla morrison from the Tilders. let's start the campaign now it's a bit like the uh Ben Brereton Diaz for Chile. We've got to get this trending on social media. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't think she has any secret, you know, grandparents or anything that we could speed the process along. But, Marissa, always a pleasure to chat to you. If people want to check out your work, the Far Post podcast and The Raw, are those the places?
2: Those are the places to check it. I'll be on The Raw live blog tonight so you can come hang out if you so wish. But, yeah, we'll have a a pod episode as well dissecting the game and just plenty more talking chilies.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Marissa. Thanks, guys. We'll take a short break. On the other side, a bit of Euro chat with uh, you, Nick, and uh, we might even talk about this massive equity investment in the A-League and try and pass some of the lingo there. So we'll take a break here on Twilight Football, back in a short while. We're back here on Twilight Football. Josh Parish and Nick Stuban are taking it through to 6pm. And uh, we're just, during the break, uh, trying to translate into something approaching uh, plain English. This Don Bossy article in the Sydney Morning Herald about the A-League potentially selling 30% of the competition to a US private equity firm for the whopping fee of $130 million dollars which would be a massive cash injection into the coffers of the A-Leagues. Uh, that, that figure values the whole competition at more than $430 million. Uh, it's, a, it's a novel concept, Nick, but for our cash-strapped code, this might be a, a welcome uh, way to uh, announce the, the independence of the A-Leagues.
1: Um, I feel like if we were in the studio, Josh, if when you said $130 million, we get that Austin Powers, like, <laughs> that little, duh, 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 you know. Um, yeah, look, I, I as you said, was just trying to um, go over Dom's article just a little bit earlier, just to kind of wrap my head around it because a lot of accounting figures and, you know, I stopped doing maths when I was in year 12 mm-hmm. and really all these sort of... Uh, yeah, we are no nowhere near
0: qualified to yeah. talk about this.
1: Um, Look, it, it, when you have a look at it, and you have a look at what it means. It, it's the biggest, I think it's the biggest sort of um, investment in the A-League ever. I believe what this article is basically saying from an outside consortium. Um, I think based off what we're seeing here, it will go towards obviously some towards the clubs, which is big. will help some of the, especially the cash-strapped clubs. You think about teams like the Mariners and Newcastle and um, and a lot, even Perth Glory. We've heard how Tony Sage has been forced to sell his house and everything else. It would certainly help them. Um, but also as well for what the competition is looking to do in the independent A-League and, you know, in terms of promotion and relegation, hopefully that means something for mm-hmm. that. That's definitely something really exciting. Um, you know, future, Dom spoke about future investments, enabling clubs to buy more marquee players. And obviously more exciting probably for us, Josh, but the APL Hub, the, uh, the new digital media platform, which we hope gets launched soon. But um, it is good that there is some investment in the league, Josh. I think it was, what, just over 12 months ago when we were talking about, how Fox Sports were only putting in a fraction of what they were paying to keep the competition alive yep. for the restart. Um, it's a massive change. It is It is exciting. Like, there's money now coming into the game, and hopefully it means that there's a bit more of a future. Yeah,
0: I, I hope this isn't sort of selling the long-term future of the competition down the river for a short-term uh, again, I mean, mm. you know, if you blow it all on marquee signings, I don't think uh, the competition is <laughs> yeah. going to last too long. You know, with that kind of short term thinking. I mean, setting up the the digital hub um, is a core part of this, and you know, the a said they would invest. They're seeking outside investment. I think there is a hole in the sort of Australian football consumer marketplace for. A little bit like what the world game left over, but maybe something a little bit more forward facing, a little bit, um, you know, embracing the newer technologies available now to actually build Mm -hmm. a site where you have uh, potentially rights to show highlights from a number of different leagues, not just the A-League stories from all sorts of Australians playing overseas, um, you know, just sort of a one-stop shop where people could go to get their football fix and potentially uh, draw in fans who don't even follow the A-League and then via the algorithm, you know, drip feed in a bit of A-League news with your, you know, Mo Salah storylines or what have you. And I think that would be a really good way to have an all-encompassing platform to actually convert people. Because uh, I, I I think we've been missing that. I don't feel like it's you know, part of my sort of routine getting my football news in the morning. I have mm. a defined place to go to. I'm browsing The Athletic and uh, City Morning Herald and so on and so forth. It, whereas the World Game website for me used to be part of my kind of daily routine and I, I do miss that.
1: Yeah, and I think that what, what you've you've hit on the, nail on the head there, Josh, is talking about conversion um we have a lot of european football fans here, a lot of the big premier league appetite and daniel Sturridge is signing summed that up the second daniel Sturridge signed you had all sorts of just football fans casual football fans premier league fans euro snobs a lot just all like oh my god daniel Sturridge is coming here mm. that is something that they have to understand there is an appetite from those casual fans and there will be interest in seeing that um and you speak about a one-stop shop josh i think a lot of people as well consume their news very differently now um, a lot of people do it via, you know short highlight three minute highlight packages um not even like little 40 second highlight packages uh they want to see the scores quickly like they go on fotmob for instance and you scroll yeah. through and you have a look line up stats you get all that then there's obviously the few that want their long-form guardian athletic kind of pieces which for me and i think for you as well josh we both like like we like the longer form stuff so you're going to have both. And I think that's something they need to try and embrace. You have, even for the A-League, you have your short, short match reports, which are only written by, you know, very sort of AAP-wise kind of stuff. Um, and then you have your analysis from someone who's able to sort of speak about the broader storyline of the game and everything else, plus the highlights and everything. Mm. And you can go to that app, you can go to that website, and you know that you can get stuff from overseas, you get stuff from Australia, and it's all together. And hopefully this money goes towards that. I think that's a massive part of it. And I think the sooner we get it off the ground, the better, because, um, you know, I think we've heard about it for a while now that it's happening, but you hope that with three weeks until the season starts, that hopefully we can get at least a little bit of a soft launch around that time, because you don't want to be starting six weeks or seven weeks into the season and you lose that bit of momentum. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, You know, you speak about FOTMOB and things like that, you know, now you've got, you know, articles embedded on really widely used apps like that. Potentially, the APL Digital Hub could look to uh, form partnerships with really widely used yeah. applications like FotMob and get their their content embedded on the A League News tab. I, I think there are various uh, avenues for success and and growth here and cross promotion that uh, could be achieved. and, and this cash injection. You know, I don't know anything about Silver Lake. Um, hopefully, it's, you know, nothing like the Perth Glory cryptocurrency deal and they do really have the money and they are legit. Um, but I suspect, you know, with CBS Viacom involved, that's probably smooth, um, grease the wheels for uh, an American uh, private equity firm to get involved. I think that this deal with a a media conglomerate that isn't just in our little, um, you know, cottage industry backyard in Australia uh, has probably uh, wider reaching impacts for the, uh, mm. the reputation of the competition and broad. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate CBS Viacom's uh, influence or potential influence mm. in, in making this thing happen. Uh, but Nick, before we go, we should cast our eyes over to Europe. Uh, Manchester United nil, Liverpool five.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. If you think um, that six, this, this I think it was. Um, it was written in the in the Guardian um, about. The, I was reading about. It. This was easily the worst Manchester United loss I think ever. Like you can't lose. It, it, like six one in against City was bad, but that was different times. This what about what about Spurs? Low, just last year. <laughs> no, no, no. This is rock bottom. This is okay. rock bottom. I think, Josh. I think like when you really think about it, the the context of how much money they've spent and everything else, selling their soul to bring in all these players. And still seeing how you know vibes FC. You can't win games based off good vibes anymore. Um, I was listening as well to the, the as well plug the Guardian again, the Football Weekly this week, and they will say, you know Ole was like fantastic for the pandemic era because you know it was all about bringing the good vibes during lockdown. Needs someone to keep the morale high and everything and all that sort of stuff in the locker room. But right now it's not really working. The vibes are like a sugar hit. It does. It's not a long term thing and. Josh, you're a United fan, and one thing that I saw was just complete disarray, especially defensively, like players all over the place. There was no sort of positional awareness. The defence was picked apart like it was under 10, Sunday league kind of stuff. It was it was quite embarrassing, and I'm not even a United supporter.
0: It was complete chaos. Uh, I, I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has become too wrapped up in uh, the comeback against Atalanta, and it's been... Interesting to see him start to believe his own, you know, bull, essentially, that he's trying to spin in press conferences because he's always talking about the old days. He's always trying to get the fans on side, talking about Sir Alex and all this stuff and the Manchester United mm. way. And I think it's gone to his head a little bit. He's tried to play 4-2-4 against Liverpool mm. in 2021. <laughs> it's an insane strategy to play four forwards who have little to no defensive uh impetus or responsibility. It's not just Ronaldo not running. They had four Ronaldos up front against Liverpool. And that had this flow-on effect of the Liverpool fullbacks being totally unopposed. And then for this first goal, I think especially they, they conceded the same goal sort of four times and the fifth was a bit different. But the yeah. first goal especially just summed it up for me because it was uh Andy Robertson completely on his own unmarked. But instead of just jockeying, holding position and waiting for players to get back and support defensively, Aaron Wan-Bissaka goes for a kamikaze charge towards him, completely abandoning his man. Lindelof goes out to the right-hand touch line. Harry Maguire is left-stranded. McFred, both midfielders, totally astray in no man's land. And then Luke Shaw playing a different offside line to everybody else. It was just, it was hilarious. It was under 10s
1: you could genuinely play the benny hill music over the top of it, <laughs> just watching how easily it was picked apart and look i know that there's a lot of talk about bringing antonio content how he's able to bring in results but i don't think antonio contact would turn this team around without a transfer window that is what this this team is ridiculously unbalanced there is no fix in midfield right now that they can put in that is going to actually work but fred is like it is just football terrorism putting them to and, and sticking with it um Nemanja Matic is not Nemanja Matic of five years ago under Antonio Conte mm. Paul Pogba we don't know what Paul Pogba's headspace is does he even really like he says he wants to be there and he doesn't and he gets sent off to bad challenges like he did on the weekend um you know he, we know what he's like defensively that sort of shoehorned him onto a wing now um, Donny Bay can't even get a minute on the pitch right now. I mean,
0: let me let me um, stop you right there, Nick, because I don't think it's the players. I mean, there have been some well, poor individual performances, but I think it's just a lack of a detailed approach from the manager. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They're just playing on instinct, and there's eleven individuals.
1: I, I get that about there's lack of a game plan. There, there really mm-hmm. is not There's lack of cohesion. No as well.
0: structure. It's but I think that down that's down to the manager.
1: It is. It is, definitely. But I still think that any coach that takes over is going to be finding themselves with a problem, especially in terms of the plays he puts on the field, especially in the middle. I think at either end, you've got things to work with. You've got an okay defence and you've got an okay attack. But the thing is, in midfield, it's just this black hole. You know, you look at that that combination, it's not going to work. They need to sort that out as well. Because Antonio Conte, the way he plays is everything's through the middle. It's all about compressing things. Fred's erratic, Tomine's... Scott is probably a bit of a... He's kind of the Antonio Conte mould of just being a destroyer. He'll just sit and let the others do the rest. But other than that, I I still just have my doubts, Josh. Like, I think if Conte was to take over at the end of the season and, you know, be able to buy six or seven players or probably six or seven, maybe four or five players in his his mould, he might be able to do something. There's There's
0: only one player that they need. It's just a defensive midfielder. It was so obvious and they spent the money on Ronaldo instead.
1: Yeah, like, yeah is... no, but
0: And Ronaldo puts him in a really difficult position because he has to start, the whole team becomes about him, he doesn't do any defensive work, you know, it's, it's multiple. I, I think there's a, a simple fix to this situation in the short term, and that is going five at the back or three at the back, whatever you want to call it. Because if you don't have a proper defensive midfielder to anchor that team... Playing with three central defenders gives you a little bit more stability in terms of defending against counterattacks. So mm. I think Antonio Conte's system, you know, could fit pretty well in the immediate term. You know, yeah, but I mean, does and, he have and probably play, being, bringing play, van, bringing Donny Van, bringing Donny van Beek into the starting eleven. I don't know necessarily who the other midfielder would be. Maybe McTominay, maybe Pogba he did work with him at Juventus, of course. Um, I also think uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka either needs to be dropped or converted into maybe a right-sided centre-back a la Kyle Walker in an England team because he he just Mm. can't provide the kind of attacking support that you need and he's lacking direction like all the rest of the players. I think Diogo Dalot would immediately come into the mix as a right wing back, just a serviceable... Mm. Like fine player who doesn't have the just glaring strengths and weaknesses that wan does. Honestly, I, I think you know appointing a a world class manager, however short term that appointment might be, would immediately improve United, especially one like Conte who's going to crack the whip.
1: He will, and I think they, in terms of Conte as a person, Josh, I think he's the person they need because he doesn't suffer fools. No, he will put them through a boot camp like within days. He does not care. I, I was watching this interview he had with Henri. um i don't know how long ago it was but i saw it have mm. my tiktok feed and he was basically talking about how like if you're not on my side and you don't work with me i want to kill you that's literally like essentially what he said that's just paraphrasing yeah. it. but he's he's a nutcase and we know he's everywhere he's gone he's done really well at the start and then he leaves this he's like almost like jose in that fact that he leaves on really bad terms and runs mm-hmm. a lot of people the wrong way but the one thing that i'd be curious about is because if he came in, we've seen what Conte's gone from more of a 3-4-3 three, three to have a 3-5-2. He likes to really, you know, compact things up front, play two up top. And at Inter, he really looked at two hard-working forwards. Yeah, Romelu Lukaku and Lautaro Martinez who worked together. It was like this perfect, you know, like it was like watching an orchestra seeing how they work together. There's a lot of players in United squad profile that would probably not fit that style. How does J- Jaden Sancho? Does he become sort of a inside forward? Can he play as a wing back? I, I'm I not too sure if so. that would work. Um, you know, there's a few other players. I, I don't know if Bruno Fernandes has the defensive capability to play in that sort of system. He'd have to have some sort of Christian Eriksen kind of um, remontada as he did in the last six months of last season. So I'd be intrigued to see how it would work after he also got a transfer window. Because I think he'd go out and he'd probably go out and look at buying someone like Nicola Barella, who fits his style to a T. I know Marcelo Brozovic is out of contract. I reckon he would I go think and Brozovic
0: get, would uh, do bits. Would, you know, you would be know, a he massive would Immediately fix that team. Mm. Like it, it would, it would transform it completely just with one, yeah. one player. Brozovic as a Absolutely. six. Then maybe maybe you move Van de Beek into the the starting That's level if as well. I think he and still suddenly, wants to be there. Yeah. Though. Well, but under a new coach, I think he, you know he would potentially have a new new lease of life.
1: But you have to ask Josh: How long do United? I guess, back him in because they've publicly said he's our guy and he's signed a four-year deal. I know that contracts mean nothing these days, but it's still going to be a hefty payout. How long do you sort of, do you, do you let him just go through this next month, this horrible run of fixtures, and then say if they lost against City and just got batted against then you just go, all right, that's it. Or do you, you know, do you cut, cut it short after Tottenham on the weekend or after Atalanta? What, what, what do you think?
0: I mean, if that's not a sackable performance against Liverpool, I'm not sure what is. You know, obviously, it's a tough run of games. Maybe you bring in a a caretaker coach or assistant coach to uh, just coach those games so that you're not giving a a new manager a baptism of fire. Maybe you Mm -hmm. wait until, you know, closer to January. But what really irks me is the lineup of former United players who were teammates with Ole Solskjaer and have a massive conflict of interest just they can't seem to bring themselves to say he needs to go, he needs to be sacked. Mm. Especially Gary Neville, who I don't know if you've seen the Sky Sports clip, but he ties himself in not trying to justify a reason why Ollie should stay on. It's mm. extraordinary. It really is. Yeah. I, I look I, I just couldn't get through the entire clip because you know, he's saying he never says that a manager should be sacked. Um, And that's fair enough. Maybe that's a consistent thing. He just doesn't want to call for people's jobs. But then he says that Conte wouldn't be a fit at United because he's a mercenary head coach. And I think that's crazy because this is harking back to a time that doesn't exist at United anymore. Trying to replicate the Alex Ferguson model, model will never work because there is only one Alex Ferguson. United need to... The sooner they realize that they are just any other super club and not... You know, uh, and the sooner they let go of that kind of exceptionalism, uh, that sort of pompous United Way stuff uh, that you know these class of '92 pundits keep peddling, the sooner they will move on and you know discover that yes, maybe you need to change your manager every two or three years. This happens; it's part of the game. And looking for the best, most experienced, world-class manager is exactly what you should be doing at Manchester United. Not trying to. Uh, groom the next Sir Alex Ferguson who doesn't exist.
1: And put it like this, they missed the boat on Thomas Tuchel. You know, mm-hmm. Thomas Tuchel would have been a great fit at Manchester United had he come in. You remember just how just how quickly he changed things at Chelsea from their disorganised, you know, shambles they were in under Frank Lampard to a week later they were defensively just rigid and un- like you couldn't get through them. I mean, how many um, world-class, world-class
0: managers have United let slip them by? Pochettino? Pochettino? Um, Klopp?
1: Um, Yes, they Jürgen could have Klopp.
0: signed Jurgen Klopp no. uh, um, before he went to Liverpool,
1: of course. Well, they had numerous chances of Poch. He was always yeah. technically available even when he was at Spurs. Um, exactly, you'd, you'd think that they probably could have gone for Carlo Ancelotti at least twice, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Or who else has that's really gone? I mean, Conte was available during this period as well, like in between jobs at um, Chelsea and and Inter. Um, there's been heaps. Like you can you can rattle them off there's been so many that have come through. Um, and I, I, I do get a sense that, you know, if this was any other boss, if there was any other coach, if it was Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho, you think back, David Moyes, you think of the last three bosses that came before him and the pressure that they were under. You know, Mourinho got them trophies. He was copping at left, right and centre. I know that it was very different. I know with Louis van Gaal, they played anti-football, but he did better than what they were doing under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But, um, you know, I, I think that, Look, for the, for the man, you never want to wish someone to lose their job. It's a terrible thing to say, but in this football world, in the football punditry, if someone's not up to it, sometimes you just got to say, right, you know what? We I'm understand you're this. a club legend, but that's what comes, Josh, when you hire a club legend at your team. Yep. Think about Juventus with Pirlo. Think about Milan with all those coaches they brought in. <laughs> in Sado, Gonzagi. You know what's going to end in tears at some
0: point? That's part of the yeah. appointment
1: and you know, sometimes the popular co- popular player doesn't necessarily make the popular coach. That's it just doesn't work always. Some a lot of the best yeah. coaches Josh were not the best players to be honest.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I mean trying to uh resurrect an era that doesn't exist anymore uh is isn't not going to happen. Solskjaer has yeah. tried to do it in the dugout, United are trying to do it at board level, their ex-players are trying to do it in in the punditry chairs on sky sports and the like and it's just uh you know it's just nostalgia it's just uh, yeah. the thing about the old days is they the old days is the famous line from the wire goes
1: yeah so, and um and just quickly josh just before mm-hmm. we wrap it up um i mean this weekend against tottenham it's massive for both teams like this is you look at their they're, they're, i'm about to say something else so i can't say at this time but their, their their sort of situation at the moment with espiritual santo and you look at on a soulshire this whoever loses this game, you know, there's gonna be that extra layer, you know, that you don't wanna lose against the the equally struggling giant. It's that weird storyline. You've got two big teams both struggling, both mains under pressure. And if that extra if that major gets the nose on you, it's not gonna look good for the other. And I just get this feeling that, you know, that magic of Solskjaer pulling out results against bigger clubs, it's gone. Like I think that's one thing we've just gotta put the, the line through and um, it'll be unless, unless he goes back weekend. to
0: the shape that he would play in those games, and uh, but will Pusinel? that happen? Well, that involves dropping Ronaldo, and he's clearly demonstrated that he doesn't have the gravitas or you know, to do that and own that decision.
1: And also, you have to think there are a lot of United fans out there, Josh. That don't see the bigger issue about Ronaldo, that Ronaldo is not the problem. They still think that everything revolves around Ronaldo just scores goals. Ronaldo just scores goals. Just got to give him service, blah, blah, blah. He's transformative, blah, blah, blah. But they don't see the other issues. Yeah. You know, he's... he's Solskjaer... A, he Solskjaer doesn't, is... want to, doesn't want to piss anyone off. He's
0: The way he won big games is by playing this sort of... A lot of the time it was like a diamond with two kind of wide strikers playing up front sort of somewhere between wingers and forwards, and then Bruno Fernandes spraying the through balls from behind. And would be Rashford and Greenwood, usually. And that was just killing teams with pace on the break and sitting quite deep and retaining defensive structure. Now they're trying to play this washbuckling brand of football and try and prove everybody wrong and say, you yeah, know, we're still Manchester United, it'll be okay. And, you know, that's been proven to be a completely insane kamikaze approach. So unless Solskjaer Ooh. changes it up and goes back to the... Very uh, conservative, rapid counter-attacking football that got him those big results, those big scalps in big games against big opposition. I can see them going down again uh, this weekend against Mm. Tottenham. And in several of these big games they have coming up, it's only going to get worse. So, uh, Nick, I think we've done that one to death. We should leave it there. Uh, It's been a pleasure. If people want to hear our chat with Marisa Lordanek, Uh, You can catch up, uh, just rewind the live stream uh, once we go off air or uh, catch up on the podcast platforms. Uh, But, Nick, I'll, I'll speak to you again soon. See you
1: then, Josh.